This episode of The Explainer is sponsored by Daft Advantage Ads. Looking to sell your property for the best price? Daft Advantage Ads will maximise your chances. Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Laura Byrne, and this week, what's the story with Irish neutrality? Now, the war in Ukraine in the last year has been the catalyst for renewed debate on Irish neutrality and what exactly it means to be neutral. The Irish government has held back on providing lethal aid to Ukraine, but it has condemned the Russian invasion. Instead, it's providing non-lethal assistance to the Ukrainian military, such as body armour and demining training. The history of this stance is a little opaque in Ireland, as rather than being written into law, neutrality is more of a long-standing policy position. The government is now looking to gauge the public's view on the future of Ireland's military non-aligned stance, and there is a growing sense that views on the subject are becoming more and more divergent. So we'd like today to take a look at how we got here. How did Ireland become a so-called neutral state? To break all of this down, I'm joined today by Dermot Ferreter, who is Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD. Dermot, many thanks for joining us today. Pleasure to be here, Laura. Can you tell us firstly, what year do we have to go back to to understand Ireland's position on or understanding of neutrality? There is no one year or starting point when it comes to this theme and and this debate. You have to be conscious, I suppose, of those, particularly those who are great defenders of Irish neutrality, who will go right back to the 18th century. They will go back to Wolf Tone, considered by many to be the father of, of modern Irish republicanism. He wrote a pamphlet in 1790 in the context of a threatened war between England and Spain. And he was making the point that Ireland should not have to be a part of England's wars. Uh, But, you know, Wolf Tone, for all his public stridency, would have been uh, less strident, perhaps, in private correspondence. So it's never as clear cut as that. But we also have to be conscious, I suppose, of how Irish nationalism and Irish republicanism developed in the in the late 19th and the early 20th century. The focus is very much on ourselves alone. You know, the, the vision of, of an independent Ireland exercising an independent foreign policy. Uh, and obviously, the ultimate vindication or expression of an independent uh, foreign policy is the ability to opt out of international conflict, if that's what you choose to do. So that was on the minds um, of Irish nationalists in the early 20th century. Uh, Consider, for example, that there was an Irish Neutrality League in 1914. The context there, of course, was the outbreak of the First World War. James Connolly uh, was a very uh, vocal proponent of of the idea of neutrality. We serve neither King nor Kaiser. uh, We serve Ireland. Some people may be familiar with that phrase. So that encapsulated that sense of having to have the choice uh, to opt out. But interestingly, uh, students of Anglo-Irish history in the early 1920s, particularly the treaty negotiations, might be aware that the question of neutrality also arose there. This was negotiations between Sinn Féin representatives and the representatives of the British government to try and bring the War of Independence to an end. And Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins, who led the Sinn Féin delegation at the treaty negotiations, were quite clear in their insistence that Ireland would have to be free to be neutral in the context of any agreement. And that was rubbished by the British government, who insisted that because Ireland would be remaining within the uh, British Empire, within the Commonwealth, as a dominion, it would not have that choice. So it was quickly shot down. But the fact that it was there as an aspiration, as a demand on the Irish side, uh, serves to illustrate again the importance of the, of the idea of an independent foreign policy. And of course, Eamon de Valera 
famously seen as the architect of modern Irish uh, neutrality. He had things to say about this during the period of the War of Independence as well. He was in America for 18 months uh, between 1919 and 1920 to promote the cause of the Irish Republic. And he addressed the issue of a future foreign policy for an independent Ireland. And he said, we would have the right to an independent foreign policy, but that foreign policy would not threaten Britain's security interests. In other words, Ireland would not be permitted to be used as a base to launch an attack on Britain. We're not going to threaten Britain's uh, security interests and that this would be an issue of mutual um, self-interest. Neutrality is not just about geography. or Sorry, it's not just about history. It is about geography as well. We have to consider Ireland uh, as an island uh, behind another island uh, and what that means in, in practical terms when it comes to security and defence issues. So he was addressing that question in America because there were sensitivities about America's relationship with uh, the uh, with Britain. There was also, of course, concern about the fallout from the First World War. Woodrow Wilson, as president of the United States at that time, would have been adamant after the war that there was a need for a community of nations, uh, that there needed to be uh, some thought given to collective security. And of course, that was ultimately what evolved into the League of Nations. And even as early as 1919, the first Doyle at the outset of the War of Independence insisted that it would be interested in being a part of any future community of nations, what became the League of Nations. And crucially, it insisted that it would accept both the burdens and the responsibilities that would go with that. So there's no such thing as absolute neutrality. And there never really was, I think, within uh, the canon of Irish nationalism, there was a pragmatic recognition that Ireland would not be in a position to absolutely dictate uh, its own foreign policy, that they had to be pragmatic about the realities of geopolitical power. So, I mean, what you're saying there is, in a sense, it was a, a political act of self-preservation, if nothing else. Uh, what did we take neutrality to mean then at that time? Is it a subjective term? Oh, very much. You know, I mean, there's always been tortured debate about the terminology uh, around Ireland's foreign policy when it comes to what we call neutrality. You'll often hear references to traditional uh, Irish neutrality. Well, there isn't really a traditional Irish neutrality. The constitution, the first constitution of the Free State in 1922 um, was explicit in that, you know, Ireland would not go to war, uh, save with the in assent of Doyle Aaron. Uh, and even at a later stage with the 1937 constitution, neutrality is not mentioned. What you have, again, is, is de Valera's recognition that you have to be conscious of what you can and cannot control. And de Valera was determined to get back the treaty ports. And this is a crucial part of the evolution of, of an independent foreign policy. Britain, under the terms of the treaty, had retained uh, certain naval bases and, and, and ports on the coast of Ireland. De Valera won them back through negotiation in 1938. That was the final piece in the Anglo-Irish jigsaw when it came to the possibility of Ireland opting out of international conflict. But even when de Valera declared neutrality at the outset of the Second World War in 1939, he added the rider that still there was no question of Ireland being used as a base uh, from which to attack Britain. So there was a recognition, uh, again, of, of, of the reality of where Ireland lay um, but there was a determination to opt out uh, of the international conflict. So, you know, many people would associate the beginnings of the tradition of Irish neutrality to 1939. 
Absolutely. When people discuss neutrality, really, in a in a, a modern sense, you hear them mention the emergency and that's kind of what's in our consciousness. Do but even before the emergency, Laura, you know, De Valera would have stated quite explicitly in the Dáil that there is no such thing as absolute neutrality that you have to respond to the needs of the time. And that's why neutrality is not, it's not in the constitution. Irish neutrality is not a constitutional neutrality, say, in the way that it is later in Austria, for example, in the middle of the 1950s. So there is that recognition that, yes, we associate uh, Irish neutrality with the emergency and the period of the emergency. And it's a very important uh, period. Uh, it's also about not wanting to plunge Ireland back into war and into division because there was a recognition that if Ireland did participate in the war, it would cause huge divisions within Ireland and within the body politic. I would say that many of our listeners will be surprised to hear that it's not in the constitution, dear is that any? Is there any particular reason behind that? I thought it was sacrosanct. No, it's not sacrosanct. And I mean, this is one of the great myths uh, around Irish neutrality. It was never sacrosanct. The whole point, of course, of, of what de Valera had been saying as early as 1920 in the United States and again in the Dáil in the 1930s is that we cannot be sacrosanct about this. We have to respond to how the world is at a particular stage. We will not be drawn into conflict uh, against our will, but there are many things outside of our control. Uh, and again, Ireland as a small, isolated outpost uh, can control very little. Uh, and if we take some of the irascible meanderings of one of our great poets, uh, Paddy Kavanagh, he suggested that all the Irish Defence Forces would be capable of defending was a field of turnips from an invasion of crows. So there was a recognition about our limited potential. And we do have to be conscious of that, um, that we didn't have the wherewithal or the capability to engage uh, in modern warfare. So you have to be strategic and you have to be canny. But that was very tricky throughout 1939 to 1945. And of course, then we, we stay on World War II and the emergency as we knew it to be. When it broke out, were we neutral from the get go or was there an ongoing political debate around it? No, there wasn't. We were neutral from the get go. There's a very broad political consensus. Only one TD, James Dillon, who was a future leader of Fine Gael, spoke out against neutrality. Some did feel that Ireland was opting out of one of the great moral questions of that period, the defeat uh, of Nazism. But there was broad uh, political consensus about neutrality uh, insofar as we can measure it. Um, there was significant public support uh, for neutrality. But What's not known in 1939, of course, is how long the war is going to last. And there was genuine fear in the early stages of the war that Ireland could be invaded. Uh, and that was taken very, very seriously. And you then get into the whole territory of how neutrality is managed from 1939 to 1945. And the words of one of our historians, Dermot Keogh, are particularly apt here. He said it was a world of shadow language and shape shifting. And this brings us back to the idea that there's no such thing as absolute neutrality. Ireland's neutrality was very biased in favour of the Allies. De Valera had a particular rhetoric that he used publicly in relation to the rights of a small nation, and it was very sincerely uh, held. The, the beliefs that he, he was articulating were very sincerely held. But there's also a recognition that behind the scenes and privately, you have to be pragmatic. And you're also dealing with a very hostile a response to neutrality from Britain initially and later when America comes into the war, that has to be managed 
diplomatically. And Ireland as a neutral country has legations from both the Axis and the Allied powers. You know, there is a presence from both sides uh, in Ireland at that time. And de Valera and his government are often walking a tightrope uh, through this period. We shouldn't underestimate what a political challenge uh, that was. Neither should we discount all of the unofficial channels for cooperation. Um, Viscount Carnborn, uh, who was the Dominion Secretary um, in the 1940s, at the end of the war, even though he hated the Irish, he listed a whole range of areas in which there had been support covert support given by the Irish side to the Allies. Um, We also had the Coast Watch. There were 83 lookout points around the coast uh, of Ireland, and that information was being shared, uh, particularly when it came to U-boats. There was cooperation between MI5 uh, and Irish military intelligence. Irish military intelligence was quite far uh, advanced at that stage. Uh, And of course, you had all sorts of behind-the-scenes cooperation in relation to the issue of uh, the air corridors. Um, so, you know, there, there are a variety of different channels of, of cooperation and, and communication that are obviously designed uh, to recognise geographic and political reality. But some would argue that that also compromised the idea of Ireland as a neutral state. So where did that leave us in the eyes of Nazi Germany then? So if we're providing covert assistance and political support in some ways, were we on their radar, so to speak? Well, very interestingly, when the North Strand is bombed uh, in May 1941, um, and that was there was a broader context there of the, of the Belfast Blitz, because of course there was a blitz uh, that really pounded uh, Belfast, and there had been suggestions that the bombing of the North Strand was a kind of a warning signal because. De Valera had insisted that the Irish Fire Brigade go over the border uh, to help with the rescue effort in Belfast after the Blitz there, particularly in April uh, 1941, uh, and that Germany was not happy about this. Um, Now, it's very difficult to bring absolute clarity uh, to what precisely the motivations were, because you have to remember geographically just how close Dublin and Belfast are when it comes to, to, to bombing missions. But nonetheless, there would have been concern in Germany at that time. But the reality is... You know, occupying Ireland or punishing Ireland, um, it's not really a main strategic objective uh, of Germany. There are much bigger fish to fry. And in a way, Ireland was lucky about the way the war developed in that the possibility of of invasion obviously lessened, particularly with America coming into the war. But de Valera was very annoyed about American troops being stationed in Northern Ireland. Uh, And in a way, you know, the fact that Ireland was neutral and that Northern Ireland was part of the United Kingdom, that solved a certain dilemma uh, for for Britain. Winston Churchill hated neutrality. He hated de Valera. He said at one stage privately that the Irish needed to be saved from themselves. Uh, And there was a question as to whether there would be an attempt to seize the ports back from Ireland. But having a base in Northern Ireland meant that that wasn't necessary uh, and it wasn't carried out. But it didn't lessen... Uh, the intensity of the opposition and the animosity uh, that existed. But de Valera was also very concerned about rumours that conscription was going to be imposed on Northern Ireland, because that, again, would have been regarded as a a violation. Um, And, you know, so there were various diplomatic issues that arose. There was pressure in 1944 on the Irish government to close the Axis legations uh, in Ireland. The German representative, Edward Hempel, um, was, you know, somebody who obviously features very prominently in our narrative of Irish neutrality because de Valera famously expressed condolences on the death of Hitler on behalf of the Irish people, which caused a cold fury 
uh, in Britain and the United States, and there were people at home uh, who felt his judgment uh, had been had been uh, very um, badly managed. So you know, there again, there there are a variety of, of different tensions there. But what they're trying to do is to maintain the public stance. When you think of all of that, it's incredible, really. The offering of condolences on the death of Hitler, just unimaginable. I know you've mentioned there was public support, Dermot, for neutrality during the war, but did that position lose any public support along the way? That's a very interesting question. You'll remember a great journalist, Robert Fisk, who wrote um, a very weighty tome on Irish neutrality. And he was one of the first to research the theme from archival sources. And one of the points that he made is that censorship was at the core of Irish neutrality. There was a ferocious censorship uh, in Ireland, controlled by the government as a part of Ireland's neutrality. And it did mean that information about what was happening abroad was very limited. Now, that's not to say that stories were not starting uh, to emerge, particularly in 1945 and the liberation of the concentration camps and the horrors uh, therein. And the Department of Justice was mean, spirited and hardline when it came to the taking in of Jewish refugees. Um, and there have always been issues around that lack uh, of, of, of charity. Um, but at the same time, we have to be conscious of reading history backwards. Uh, it's difficult in 1945 to establish what is true and what is not true and what you can believe and what you can't believe. Robert Brennan who was the Irish government's representative in Washington during the war, he made the point that an awful lot of his time during the war was, was spent trying to convince those in America that many of the stories that grew wings uh, coming out of Ireland uh, were, were wrong or were far-fetched. And there was a lot of distrust of information. There was also a traditional distrust of what was regarded as British propaganda uh, by, by Irish Republicans in particular. And there was a degree of pro-German sentiment in Ireland. You know, and you've got to go back to the idea of Ireland's gallant allies in Europe uh, in relation to 1916, the famous assertion about German cooperation and German assistance uh, to Irish Republicans. Um, you know, th that sense uh, of your enemy's enemy being your friend, that did linger uh, within Irish Republicanism. Now, the government takes a hard line against the IRA during the Second World War and interns members of the IRA, and they're not particularly powerful. Uh, and it's difficult to measure that pro-German sentiment, but it is there uh, to a degree. So you've got to throw all of that into the mix when it comes to knowledge uh, of, of the Holocaust and the extent of what was going on. But there's no doubt uh, that Ireland's record uh, when it came to refugees was a very poor one. Selling your property? Ask your estate agent for a daft advantage ad today for maximum visibility, best results and best price for your property. And so if we move past the emergency, Dermot, can you tell us a bit about Ireland's brief encounter with NATO then in 1949? Things have settled down post-World War II. Did we come close to joining or simply just entertain the idea of NATO around then? No, uh, we didn't come close to joining. Um, Sean McBride was the Minister for External Affairs at that stage, as it was called then. Of course, he was an ex-Chief of Staff of the IRA as late as 1936. Um, and he was adamant that Ireland could not join an alliance that involved Britain, particularly given the partition of Ireland. How could Ireland join in a military alliance with a country that, in McBride's words, was responsible for the unnatural uh, division of Ireland? Now, 
the United States was pretty indifferent <laughs> to the idea uh, of Ireland being a crucial member of, of NATO anyway, because it was never going to be. Um, but there was a suggestion from McBride that in place of NATO membership, Ireland could uh, form some kind of um, alliance with the United States, some kind of defence alliance, uh, which came to nothing. Uh, was rather a grandiose idea. But I think even before NATO, I think what's more important really is the emergence of the United Nations in 1946, because there was some debate about that. And Ireland does join the United Nations in 1955. And as de Valera uh, recognised, and he said it very explicitly again uh, in the Doyle, uh, the United Nations Charter would oblige members in the event um, of of the United Nations uh, demanding that its members get involved in a military alliance or conflict, that Ireland will be ob obliged not to dodge its responsibilities. So again, there was a clear recognition there that membership of the United Nations could in the future involve Ireland abandoning its neutrality and that that was a condition of membership and recognised as such. So NATO, Ireland was not going down that path, but it was going to embrace membership of the United Nations from the middle of the 1950s. So I think, that, I suppose for our listeners' sake, this is really where our neutrality takes a more modern shape and we start to lean into the peacekeeper role. Well, our first peacekeeping mission is in the Lebanon in 1958. And it's a very important development. I mean, um, there have since 1958 been multiple um, Defence Forces involvement in, in various peacekeeping missions in, in Europe and Asia uh, and Africa. It's been very extensive. Uh, and in the region of 90, Defence Force members have been killed uh, during those peacekeeping missions. Um, it was about Ireland engaging in a much fuller way uh, with the world. But it also raised the stakes. And it also raised questions about how Ireland's foreign policy would evolve. We have involvement, obviously, in humanitarian missions. Um, Ireland's constitution, uh, you know, states explicitly that, you know, we are in the business of international peace and cooperation. And that's not to be discounted. Um, you know, Frank Aiken became very much associated at a later stage at the United Nations with nuclear non-proliferation and defending the idea that small states are not irrelevant when it comes to international tensions and, and, and Cold War tensions. But the peacekeeping strand um, is a way of, of bringing Ireland in to uh, those various international alliances uh, and obligations short of military alignment. That's still not uh, on the radar, but it becomes on the radar very quickly. And again, I think this is too often forgotten. Ireland wanted to join the European Economic Community uh, from the outset. Sean Lamassa's Taoiseach, this was one of his priorities. He was in the office from 1959 to 1966. And he said very explicitly in the Doyle uh, when Ireland was first applying for EEC membership that if the EEC evolves into a common defence organisation or if there is to be a common uh, European defence policy, we will be a part of that. And the way he put it was that whatever way this develops, this European economic community, if it does develop into a defence uh, alliance, we will be part of it. We will go wherever that alliance takes us. And he said, we will yield the label of neutrality. We are not going to shirk our obligations. Now, that's very similar to what had been said in relation to the United Nations. And it's a further reminder that Irish neutrality was not an absolute neutrality. And what kind of political response was Lamas getting for that? 
The, but the response uh, was relatively muted. I mean, there were those, uh, particularly those on the left, who were very concerned about how this might evolve. Uh, and they are vocal in the 1960s, but they're very much in a minority because the overwhelming priority was to gain economically from European uh, economic community membership. Uh, and if that meant compromising on what was considered a traditional Irish neutrality, well, so be it. Um, you know, there isn't a very robust, coherent, united opposition uh, to the idea that we would have to compromise when it came to uh, foreign policy. And that really remains the case. I mean, even in 1969, after Lamas is gone, Jack Lynch is Taoiseach, and he says quite explicitly uh, in the Doyle, well, we've never been neutral. You know, we stayed out of the uh, Second World War, but there were versions at that stage of what we frequently hear today. We're not ideologically neutral. You know, we may not be aligned in a formal military sense. And again, he was hinting at the future um, relationship between Ireland and what became the EU. Um, and again, you can see those assertions throughout the 1970s and indeed into the 1980s that we're not ideologically neutral, that we're not ruling out uh, possible future um, involvement in European defence matters. So here we are, Dermot, we're a member of the EU. We've kept our military neutrality, although we're not politically neutral. But the Nice and Lisbon treaties really brought this debate into the public sphere again, didn't they? Very much so. And there were, there were all sorts of accusations being traded. Um, the Nice referendum uh, and then the Lisbon referendum uh, that signing these treaties was going to compromise Irish neutrality to a dangerous level. Now, many of the supporters of those treaties rejected that emphatically, suggesting that that was really over-egging the pudding. But the reality was that these treaties, and you can go back to the Amsterdam Treaty as well, before Nice and Lisbon, they were moving the EU in the direction of a common security and defence policy. And it's a real dilemma for Irish foreign policy um, proponents or, or Irish foreign policy uh, designers uh, about how this is managed, particularly when it gains traction with the electorate, the idea that this is, is going to compromise uh, Irish neutrality. So what they have to look for then are clarifications. And we get declarations and we get firm commitments and we get ultimately constitutional amendments uh, that rule out the idea, constitutionally rule out the idea of Ireland joining uh, a European common defence. Um, and that, of course, is also the era during which Ireland already agrees to join uh, NATO's partnership for peace. So some would have argued that we were already bending uh, our, our neutrality to a degree. Um, and that's true. You know, we were. Uh, we were being brought further uh, in into these missions, which were, you know, really about uh, the ability of these international organisations to go to trouble spots. Um, but they raised that much bigger question about how far uh, down a road uh, we were going. So it's a combination of those things in the in the 1990s and into the first decade of this century um, that you get a real sensitivity around the idea of neutrality and, and our neutrals uh, status. It was at Ireland's request that the EU treaties actually provide that EU policies, and, and that's the this is the official wording, that EU policies shall not prejudice the specific character of the security and defence policies of certain member states. So Ireland does get that uh, commitment, which it allows, allows it then to go to the electorate and say, right, can we have another go at this? Um, and Nice 
is subsequently endorsed. Lisbon uh, is subsequently endorsed. Um, but again, the question remained as to where this was going ultimately. And the EU has been very specific about what it wants to see uh, within really uh, the next decade. And that is a common European defence policy. And I suppose, as you say, it's important to look at the context of our neutrality in the turn of this century. It's post 9-11 and global political landscape is shifting. It does seem that we were still walking that tightrope then that de Valera had previously. Would you say, Dermot, that we have a uniquely Irish form of neutrality? Well, what was interesting about that, just on that point, we had a white paper on foreign policy in, in 1996. It was our first white paper on foreign policy in the history of the state. It comes very late. But what's interesting about the way they refer to neutrality is that they suggested it had taken a significance for Irish people that was really beyond the practical considerations on which it was originally based. Now, that is another version of what I spoke about earlier on, that it came to mean more than what was originally intended, that what was originally intended in 1939 was to respond to politics and geopolitical situation and security and defence considerations as they were then. And what you're talking about now is what they are in the early 21st uh, century. Um, and we really are going to reach a fork in the road in relation to this. It's already happening. You're talking about the situation today and even, you know, the, the situation after 9-11. Um, Michal Martin, when he was Taoiseach, was very specific about the idea of our foreign policy needing to evolve. What does that mean? The current Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, has made similar noises. There's talk now, of course, about uh, convening public discussions uh, about this. And this, again, is in the context of the Ukrainian uh, war, also the war on Ukraine. Um, so there, there is a sense that we are going to reach a fork uh, in the road. Uh, and when it comes even to what is going on at the moment, about the idea of, of greater European cooperation when it comes to defence uh, and security, when it comes to, as well, the relationship between the United States uh, and, and the EU, particularly when the Anglo-American dynamic is, is, is faltering, that is going to raise very tricky questions uh, for Ireland in relation to neutrality. And what we have to ask is whether the idea of the EU as a civil power is going to go completely by the wayside. Is there a case to be made for a small neutral state like Ireland within the EU, that the focus needs to be uh, on, on finding ways out of conflicts, that the focus needs to remain uh, on, on, on peacekeeping, that the focus needs to remain on nuclear non-proliferation. It'd be very sad to think that those things will become irrelevant or that Ireland couldn't have a role uh, in that. But we also have to be conscious, going back to the original point, about our size, our irrelevance. What can we do to defend ourselves. There's a very hard hitting review of the defence forces uh, in recent times that has made that very explicit and clear. We don't spend much on our defence. We are not at all uh, in a position to go back to uh, <laughs> the words of, of, of Paddy Kavanagh to defend ourselves in any meaningful way, which means we are dependent on others. And again, that raises political questions. Arguably, it raises uh, moral questions as well. But there is still a very strong case to be made for those who want to make it for looking at Ireland's contribution to the world as a neutral state, not to exaggerate it, uh, given geography and given our small size, um, but to make the point that, you know, there has to be a space allowed for defenders of Irish neutrality to make uh, to make that particular case. And interestingly, there's quite a toxic debate going on in Austria uh, at the moment 
Austria has been constitutionally neutral and permanently neutral according to its laws since 1955. But pressure is, is growing because of the war on Ukraine. And you're talking about a landlocked country that's only a hundred, couple of hundred kilometers uh, from the border with Ukraine. Uh, and some senior Austrian political figures and, and top military brass um, have you know, been very vocal about the idea of the spinelessness uh, of Austrian foreign policy. And obviously we have Finland joining NATO. Uh, we have Sweden obviously having to reconsider um, its traditional neutrality. So, you know, these are very live questions. They're very much of the time. What we've also had in relation to our geography is a distance from the theatres of war. And that has affected, obviously, the way we think about it. Um, but that's changing, too. Yeah, those who would be proponents of having the debate around neutrality, they call themselves the pragmatists. They'd say it's no longer a luxury we can afford. We're part of the EU, that there is war on the doorsteps of the EU. Now, our own government saying that we're military neutral, but not politically neutral. And we are providing non-lethal assistance to Ukraine. There's been a lot of shouting on neutrality in the last year. But what kind of format do you think a modern reasoned debate about our neutrality should take? No, I mean, it'd be nice to think that there could be the use of the Citizens' Assembly. I don't know why that model can't be used. Um, but, you know, there's going to be a lot of suspicion uh, that this is just a further erosion uh, or a further step on an inevitable abandoning uh, of neutrality uh, on the part of those who want to, uh, Ireland to remain uh, non-aligned. And let's not forget, there's very strong public support for maintaining neutrality. In the region of two-thirds of Irish people, when they're polled in recent times, uh, want that to remain the situation. They want Ireland to remain neutral. Um, th that's a very clear majority. The same is true in Austria, interestingly, where over 70% of the people are in favour uh, of neutrality. So uh, it, there's a very interesting question here about matching the political positioning and the political rhetoric uh, with sentiment amongst the public. And some senior members of Fine Gael have been very explicit about what they regard as the need to formally abandon uh, neutrality. Uh, and even former Taoiseach Andy Kenny uh, was very explicit in 2012 uh, about the idea of Ireland uh, not being neutral. Um, so, you know, it, it's not a brand new uh, question, but it is taking on uh, uh, new dimensions. Uh, we don't know exactly where that uh, conversation is going to go. Uh, but there, I think there is that sense of, of, of a fork in the road. Um, and I think it's going to lead to a very divisive debate because it raises all sorts of sensitivities. And, you know, this question of there being an inevitability about the abandonment of what's called traditional Irish neutrality, that is going to cause a great amount of upset and rancor. And it brings you back, I suppose, to uh, the reason, one of the reasons why Ireland remained neutral in the Second World War was to try and avoid that split. And in a way, it was also about the legacy of the Civil War, um, because, you know, they didn't want this to become an issue around which the country would be divided. Um, now, obviously, that doesn't carry the same weight uh, 100 years on. Um, but, you know, the question of dividing uh, people in relation to uh, a very sensitive subject is, is still very relevant. And I guess then it would be important not to conflate our needs for defence investment for our own defence with any debate on neutrality. Well, I mean, the, this is the interesting thing about other neutral countries historically. Uh, it doesn't mean that they haven't spent 
uh, on on defence. Um, and, you know, when you consider the case of Switzerland, for example, one of the things that review of the defence forces did was just highlight, I suppose, the gulf uh, between spending on the military and, and defence generally um, between Ireland and other countries and even other um, neutral countries. But there are also new 21st century questions about cyber security. You know, it's not just about what we understand as traditional defence and security. There are all sorts of, of, of 21st century challenges. And again, how dependent is Ireland on other places um, when it comes to the maintenance of, of its security uh, and its safety. And that's always been an issue. There was huge resentment about Irish neutrality, not just because of the practical elements, but also because of that sense that Ireland was sheltering behind others. And we hear a version of that accusation, understandably, uh, today, that you were dependent on others uh, to stay safe. And many would see that as a moral question, as well as a political and a security question. So we have updated versions of questions that surrounded neutrality at various stages. Finally, Dermot, is there another country that we should be looking to? We've talked about Austria and Switzerland. Is Switzerland the better model? Yeah, I mean, it's very tricky to make direct comparisons because the situations are different for all the countries. This is where geography, of course, comes into play, but also the question of borders um, and 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 resources uh, and history. Yes, you could. You know, if you wanted, you you could look to the situation um, of of Switzerland, for example. But I mean, Ireland is always going to have its own um, unique circumstances, as every country does. Um, and you know, what's happened in Finland, for example, uh, in recent times, is of course primarily because of the border uh, and its border question. You know, so you know, we're in a very different position. Uh, but I think some of the contentious issues that have surfaced in other neutral countries in relation to this are, are profoundly relevant uh, to Ireland. And we do need to learn from how these debates have been managed uh, in other countries. Um, and this question, of course, of, of Ireland having obligations as a member of the EU, um, the question, I suppose, will arise, well, is Ireland going to opt out if this ultimately comes, as it's likely to do, to a question of a common European defence, we have those commitments and those declarations and those assurances uh, from the first decade of this century. Are they going to be out of date? Do we need to opt out altogether? Uh, can we partly opt in and partly opt out? Uh, or is that a satisfactory situation? Or will it even be an option? Um, or can we develop a very strong case for Ireland to maintain its military non-alignment and try and continue what historically uh, it sees as its role, which is the promotion uh, of, of the resolution of conflict and, and friendly international cooperation. Some might see that as being hopelessly uh, idealistic, uh, but much of our foreign policy historically was built on ideals and very noble ideals. Dermot, it's really interesting to get the historical background, so we really appreciate you outlining all of that for us today. Pleasure. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by Daft Advantage Ads. Looking to sell your property for the best price? Head to www.advantage.daft.ie today for more info on the best way to sell your home in Ireland.
Thanks again to Dermot Ferriger for joining us today. You've been listening to the Explainer podcast by thejournal.ie. This episode was brought to you by producer Nikki Ryan. If you'd like to support all the work we do here, head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to make a one-off donation or become a monthly subscriber. And of course, you can always leave a review and a rating wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.